Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast. My name is Brett Arnold at Brett Redacted on Twitter. I am here with my now longtime co-host, uh, <laughs> Jesse Jesse Hassinger at Rock Marooned on Twitter.com. And we're both here with a frequent guest, soon to be even more frequent guest. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say fan favorite, Louis Peitzman is here. Thank you for having me. It's and a delight. For, and, for, and for teasing the frequency with which I will soon be appearing. Yeah, people can take that uh, however they want to. Uh, Je- Jesse will or Jesse will be here in the future. Lewis will be here in the future. I will be here in the future. And we are here in the present talking about child's play. Everyone's favorite Lars Klevberg joint. Just kidding, everybody. We are talking about the original Child's Play from the year 1900 and I want to say, is it 88? It's 88. Yeah, it's 88. 88. It's 88, but uh, it probably should have been 87. It just like took a very long time to make this movie. And we will talk about its production, uh, its reception, and what happened behind the scenes, the like studio drama, the reason why for a long time, if you bought a Child's Play box set, it had Child's Play 2, 3, 4, uh, and 5, but it didn't have the original Child's Play. And we'll get into all of that on this main feed, New Flesh Podcast episode on Child's Play. And this is the New Flesh Podcast, a horror movie podcast about horror movies and all things tangentially related to horror and the horror lifestyle. Uh, we're taking submissions for what that means. <laughs> As of now, I have it's yet to ended. Re- Yeah, I have yet to receive any <laughs> submissions <laughs> on what encapsulates the horror lifestyle since I asked last week. But uh, I'm assuming it, there's people are thinking on it. They're ruminating. Yeah. Yeah, before they it's marinating. Say, yeah, absolutely. Um, before we talk about the main event, Child's Play, we are also going to talk about a new release on Netflix right now, and we have to talk about it this week because by the time next week rolls around, there's going to be <laughs> another one. So we're also going to talk about Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Uh, which is a Netflix movie, but it wasn't always a Netflix movie. But honestly, I'm going to go ahead and say it fits right at home. It's at spiritually, it's a Netflix movie. I. It's funny that Netflix has such a like clear kind of signature for their, say, shall we say, lower tier efforts that I, I haven't read anything about it at all. I know this was set up at another studio, and I read stuff that made it sound like it was even produced you know, filmed maybe even before Netflix got a hold of it, but watching it, I was like, come on, no way was this made for some other, st- this is not a studio movie. This is a Netflix movie. It and feels aggressively every- Netflix yes. like, in so many ways. Yeah. Yes. It's actually kind of an interesting story. It was like in production while the Disney Fox deal was going through. And this was like one of those lower tier Fox movies. Uh-huh. Um, so basically they were like making it, but they knew that one day they were going to get a call that said, 
<laughs> this deal happened and your movie's probably not going to happen. But yeah, they kept making it. And then I'm not sure. I have, there's a great interview with Kate Urbland at um, IndieWire with, is it Lee Janiak, the director mm-hmm. yes. of uh, all three of the Fear Street movies and writer director of a great indie horror movie called Honeymoon. And I'm pretty sure she hasn't done anything in between these things. I think it's just that. But uh, Kate interviewed her and talked exact, uh, about this type of thing. And basically, it sounds like they were, when they were filming, I think they knew they were going to have to shop it around. And so, like, they filmed it R-rated for sure. I think my understanding, it seems like they maybe had, even if it wasn't an inked deal, they had, like, an this will be going to Netflix deal. <laughs> like going on while they were shooting it because there's no way in hell when this was a Fox movie that was planned to be, we talked about it on the podcast when it was like a news item. It was always going to be, it was never going to be three weeks in a row. It was going to be one a month for three months. That was like the big thing about the release of fear street. It was going to be fear street one through three. I think it was in a summer thing, like one in June, one in July, one in August or whatever it was. But instead, it ended up at Netflix, and now it's uh, three weeks in a row. And yeah, as they alluded, it does feel right at home at Netflix, and we'll talk about all that. Am I I supposed to be taking these movies as individual films? I'm confused about how I'm meant to be appreciating (laughs) them, because... I rated it individually on Letterboxd, but like, will I have to revisit that and rate Fear Street as one, you know? As uh, Fear Street, the whole bloody affair? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that's a good question. Jesse, what is your, what is your <laughs> My, I mean, this, is, this does really blur the lines. And again, that's why it's so hard to picture this not being on Netflix because, yeah, like, I, for most of the movie, I was under the assumption that, yeah, this is its own thing. It will continue in a different form in this other one, in these other two that are set in different time periods. But the way it ends, not to get ahead of ourselves, it's very clear that this story is going to be resolved in later movies. But, of course, that happens in regular movie trilogies. Um, but maybe not quite so blatantly as to say, you know, this had, this had a part two style, like, well, yeah, it's not over. You'll have to watch another one. Um, this was, you know, never seems like it was never made with the real intention of like, oh, well, this could stand alone if you wanted it to. But I guess, I don't know. I mean, exactly. I think it depends on whether those other movies in, in, uh, enhance your appreciation of this movie. And my expert opinion, not knowing even what you thought of it, is that they won't. <laughs> like, either way, you know, even if you loved it. Yeah, uh, people are of varying opinions about this movie. I've seen them all i've seen them run from like uh, this sucks and it's kitty bullshit to this is one of the best nostalgia tinged uh love letter to 90s slashers i've seen it all we'll talk about we'll parse all of that for ourselves before we get into fear street i'm gonna ask uh jesse and lewis what they watched other than that that's worth mentioning but before that i'm just gonna do a quick uh, news around because there's not that much since we last spoke. Um, the most surprising news of the week, and maybe Lewis will have more to say on this. I think maybe Jesse will. I didn't watch the whole thing, so I don't have a huge, uh, you know, a lot to say. But HBO's, I'm gonna say, pretty successful horror series, Love Lovecraft Country, will not be returning. 
for a second season on HBO. Everyone kind of assumed it would, including the creators who were working on a season two, only to be told, uh, no, we're not interested. Uh, Lewis, did you watch the show? I did not watch it because by the time I was going to watch it, enough people that I respect had said they did not like it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the black horror fans that I follow seem not into it. And uh, I trusted their judgment on it. I feel like, you know, it also was based on a book, right? So it, yes. it, it like, and that was the first season. And it sounds like what they were planning for the next season was wild um, for better or worse. I do think that like, you know, HBO clearly handled this poorly based on the fact that they were working on the second season, the fact that the actors thought they were making another season and were giving up other projects. Like there was some sort of miscommunication here. Um, I guess it's a little surprising only because it did well, but uh, I, you know, maybe HBO does care about, you know, having some sort of uh, quality control and it wasn't what they wanted. It was expensive. I don't know. Jesse, did you watch it? I watched it for a little while and bailed on it when I don't know, the sec- second or weird oh. echo. <laughs> I think it went away. Uh, the second or third episode. I'm not sure when I, I mean, I don't have any kind of like smart things to say about it. I just was not, I was like very intrigued by the first episode and very bored by and not scared by subsequent episodes. Um, so I was just like, life's too short. You know what? I'm not, I kept, I don't have to convince myself to keep watching this. Yeah. I also watched a few in bail. So uh, I just don't feel like <laughs> let's do, let's do a round table of three people who don't really have an opinion. Uh, my only opinion is that uh, with the, the season one finale hit a series high of 1.5 million people watching and it became the most watched new episode of an original series on HBO max in its first day of availability. And maybe it's that very wordy (laughs) record (laughs) that is a marker of what, what that actually means. Maybe it means nothing. Nothing really means anything anymore. I mean, like the way, the, the way that we talk about like ratings these days not to sound old, but like it's it's just kind of meaningless, right? Like the depends yeah. on like which which streaming service Netflix releases it is whatever they want, as little as they want, but they will tout when something enters seventy five million households. It's with the asterisk that that means like ninety seconds or whatever. I, it's basically. It's oh, go, oh, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I would say it's basically the oops all records form of ratings now. <laughs> Everything is just a record of some of some kind of uh, you know very narrowly determined niche. <laughs> I was going to say that I think the most useful thing for Netflix is like they have that top ten, which they have no reason yeah. to like fake because Coco Melon is always in there, <laughs> which is like, something for children. Um, so I, I, I'm interested in that, and like there are sites that will kind of compile the top 100 Netflix properties based on the number of weeks and placement in the top 10. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think anything they say makes any sense and I don't trust them or any, yeah. or anyone really. Yeah. I mean, what I f- what's going to happen when the, those major studios realize they can like stop reporting their box office numbers. 
like will I guess the trades won't accept it and it would be a whole thing. But like <laughs> it's like a new, you know what I'm saying? Like there was that set yeah. standard set and that's the only reason why we have a box office column every week and like know what's happening because if it was ha- if if like the standard was set now by these companies that are doing it, we wouldn't know shit. Yeah. Right. But I mean like there's reportable information in terms of like what theaters are taking in yes versus yes. like you know netflix or hbo yeah. sort of proprietary like they can say our streaming service got this many views based on this bizarre standard of what a view is but like we you know we have no control over that uh, and we can't our reporter can't really just find that out so i think yeah. it's a little different but i yeah. hear you it's a weird standard to set uh and yeah. i'm not sure how much it's you know it's obviously affecting their programming decisions uh but like with something like netflix it's sort of i mean it's a lot less exclusive than hbo in terms of what they are uh putting on that that service yeah and with with regard to what jesse said about oops all records being a thing i probably said this on the podcast before but it's it's lodged in my brain since whatever year this movie came out but when kangaroo jack was in theaters and I used to check the newspaper, the entertainment checks in for like movie show times and would look at the ads that were in the newspaper for the movies. The ad for Kangaroo Jack, which I think was its first week of release, maybe its second. It said the number one movie in America. And then it had an asterisk. And the asterisk said that stars a kangaroo. <laughs> so, yeah, nothing means anything. You gotta always read the fine print. Kangaroo Jack will never release you from its grit. From its <laughs> constantly thinking about Kangaroo Jack. He put the money in the jacket, and the jacket on the kangaroo. I mean, is what happens. <laughs> um, Lovecraft Country season two, as you mentioned, Misha Green, the creator of the show, I believe, or the showrunner, yeah, the creator, revealed on Twitter what it would have been. And it would have been called White Lovecraft Country Supremacy. And season two of Lovecraft Country begins in a new world. And that new world is a country that sits precisely where the United States used to sit. Welcome to the sovereign states of America. And it's like the western portion of the United States is like tribal nations. I would maybe not read all the names of the different parts of the country. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to stop the, there. Yeah. There's one called Whitelands, and I'm just going to stop there before it gets uncomfortable. But it's funny. It's like, is that... Did you also read this as like... Well, I guess you have to read it as a response to the HBO Confederate show because Misha Green put hashtag no Confederate in the tweet <laughs> in which she was showing it. But it is strange that like... Was, was Lovecraft Country just hbo overcorrecting for confederate i don't i don't think it's like a direct i don't think the first season was a direct response to that yes. at all i think that like hbo like many other networks and streaming services has you know made a move toward more inclusive programming and trying to kind of get more black creators involved in in shows and movies i, I think that's obviously part of it but i don't think like so yeah, I think I think HBO like like all networks like streaming services is definitely trying to, you know, invite more black creators to, you know, make shows and movies for them. I don't know that like Confederacy 
that was Confederate. What was that show? Whatever that show was called that never happened. For people who don't know, basically the Game of Thrones creators, like it's not like they pitched something. I think it was announced, right? It was yeah, like it was announced that it was announced that, that that was their next project. Yeah, it was something called Confederate or Confederacy, and basically the premise was what if the Civil War went the other way? Right. <laughs> right, which is like which has been done before, and yeah. I think it was more a matter of like why are these white, white dudes like, story yeah. when they yeah. also like fumbled game of thrones so like gloriously i think yeah. That, but yeah i don't think this was a direct response but i do think it sounds like uh lovecraft country wanted to kind of take that idea and be like well what like let's do it from our perspective yeah and um, that's interesting and it I, is, I, I it is interesting i, I wonder I, if hbo didn't like felt that was like bad blood between you know what i mean like we're working with all these people this seems like a weird thing for us to do like like a well these guys wanted to do it but now we're gonna do it with it just seems like maybe it would have been worth like more bad pr even though this is also bad pr yeah i, I, like I don't know it would have been good pr for hbo frankly but i yeah. think that like I, I, I want the reported piece on what happened yes. in our country because it, it very well could have been just a, a creative issue of like, we don't want you doing this. We want more of the season, like the first season of the show. We want more of that kind of, I didn't, again, I didn't watch it, but it sounded like a mix of like Monster of the Week and like ARC stuff. And they may have wanted more like that and not uh, whatever alternate universe story they were going to tell. Yeah, it's a classic case of, as you mentioned, this show was adapted as an adaptation of a book, which so was Big Little Lies, which they also said was like, you know, limited series, one and done. But once it's successful enough, of course, you do a second season with Meryl Streep added. Of course you do. But uh, in this case, I guess you don't. And uh, what did we learn here? I don't know. Nothing. Let's um, watch Lovecraft Country. <laughs> yeah. Uh I yeah, I don't know. It, it didn't never grab me. Never grab me. Um Greenland sequel. I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but there's a sequel to the movie Greenland that uh Greenland, the Gerard Butler actioner that was like a disaster movie, but we don't really have a disaster movie style budget, so it's like very muted and uh human focused. And I actually kind of <laughs> liked it quite a bit. But the sequel uh, sold to STX in a massive $75 million deal at the uh, Cannes Film Festival virtual market. So, so far, the only two things I've heard out of Cannes are a Greenland sequel is happening for a lot of money and Paddington 3 is happening. So that's the big uh, Cannes news. I'm sure, there, I'm sure there's more to come, but that's all it's we all got. That's all I need to know, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, gotta say RIP to Hollywood, uh, legend, honestly, an iconic director, Richard Donner passed away. He directed classic movies such as Superman, the Goonies, all four lethal weapons, Scrooge, one of my favorite Moe's Def movies, 16 blocks, I believe. And the Omen, the the horror, the horror centerpiece. Yes. I was getting there because, you know, bloody disgusting always finds their angle. And this, this time it was The Omen, but also I think he directed several episodes of Twilight Zone, yes. like six or something. And he also did three Tales from the Crypt and was one of the key creative figures on executive producing the series Tales from the Crypt and both movies, uh, Bordello of Blood and Demon Knight. So rest in peace, Richard Donner. Throw on a Richard Donner joint this week. 
Um, I'm not going to read this box office report. Eh, the Forever Purge opened with uh, 12.75 million for the weekend, 15.8 through Monday. The previous entry, first purge opened with 17.3. But honestly, 12.7 uh, post-pandemic for a sequel that was delayed a full year for a, fran- a waning franchise that didn't cost very much money. I think that's actually not bad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, three Universal movies were at the top of the box office, which wow. there, was, there was some stat that like that hadn't happened since like 1995, the last time three movies were at the top of the box office. Um, I'm trying to find that stack because it was a really funny list of movies. Um, uh, was it F9, Boss Baby, and um, The Forever Purge? That all Purge Universal. Five. Yeah, I'm trying to find the the bit of trivia that. Uh, God damn it, I can't find it. But well, I would say that yeah. I have not seen the Boss Baby one or two, but I hear great things. Well, we talked at length about <laughs> Boss Baby 2 last week with Jesse because Jesse has seen it. <laughs> well, Jesse answered the man's uh, prophecy. Is it I, a good... What did you, is, what, what did you say about it, Lewis? <laughs> I, I just... I mean, I've heard good things. Some seem ironic. Some seem like there's genuine love for that movie. I don't know about the sequel. I do think there's some love for the first one because it's like kind of nutty in a way that even some cartoons are kind of like reticent to be, you know, it feels, it feels like genuinely like bizarre and, and what it like kind of lunatic world and idea that it it sets up. Um, I just find it kind of read it as like, it's, it's sloppy and frantic. And the second one is more so, Um, but there is, you know, I think I'm probably, I'm going to try to write something about this. I feel like there's always like a, I wrote a little bit this about my website, sportsalcohol.com, but uh, when I reviewed the movie, but I like, I think there's some more to be saying to be said about like, I feel like I, at least as someone who really loves Looney Tunes and stuff is all, I'm always like hoping for one of these studio animated movies to be like more in that vein. And like, there are times where the boss baby movies touch that. And I think the Sony cartoons probably do a better job of that. But like, I think I want to write about this because the Space Jam movie, you know what doesn't seem like it's going to touch that at all is the Space Jam movie starring. I was going to say, you must be like on the edge of your fucking seat. (laughs) How's I'm not, I I feel like I have a good idea. Unfortunately, I think the movie's giving me a good idea of how that one's going to go, but you know, forever, forever optimistic. I like that. The centerpiece of the marketing for that is a, for the children's movie is a child edited version or a child-friendly version of a song that's called bad bitch but it's called bad bunny and the trailer just keeps going she's a bad bunny bad bad bunny and like it's not even doing the song right because bunny sounds different than bitch so it's it just (laughs) it's very confusing to me it's also confusing because bad bunny is a musical artist so it's also confusing (laughs) i have i have only seen the porky pig rap uh, which is, if you haven't watched that clip, I highly recommend it. Uh, well, uh, Space Jam, A New Legacy, <laughs> is in theaters in 10 days and also on your uh, TV at home on HBO Max if you're nasty and you care about that sort of thing. Um, I, I'll tell you what I care about are yeah. the bed bugs at AMC theaters in uh, my neighborhood. So I will which- be watching... Are the are the bed bugs back at AMC Empire? Please don't tell me that's true. They're, I have only 
heard about them at 34th street which oh, like okay. makes sense because that theater is disgusting but like yeah you know, as you know my my theater closest to me is times square so i'm always yeah. just like this is not ideal uh, i go to the times square often but only for the dolby screen which is new and less gross than other places there but then I also, I say that, but I also was there for like seven of the eight Fast and the Furious movies, which they put in their dingiest, grossest theater. <laughs> you wouldn't know so, by now if you had bad bugs from there. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so on Twitter very... posted a picture of his bed bug bites after seeing movies at 34th Street. So oh, I no, feel if you, terrified. If you Google like AMC Empire 25, there was a time when like the first images that came up were someone's pictures they put on Yelp of their bed bug bites. So I, I hope that we've moved beyond that. Um, do you guys have any movies or sh anything to talk about before we move on to Fear Street? Jesse? I'm just really eager to talk about Fear Street, to be honest. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Lewis, did you watch anything recent or new to you? Um, not really. I, uh, I you said you I, haven't I, been watching things. Yeah. As I was telling you, I watch a lot of TV, like a lot of TV. I cut everything out of my TV schedule over the past couple of years and then somehow built it back up to be worse than ever. Um, but I did watch fear street last night and it was the first new movie that I had seen in a, like in a very long in months. Okay. Well, why don't we just go right into it then? Uh, right. what did you think of fear street? I thought it was fine. I, 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 no, I, I, I liked it. Okay. It was just like, it was very overhyped for me. So I like went into it thinking like, this is going to be so much better than expected. And it definitely like is better than it needs to be. And therefore is better than expected, I guess. But like people are comparing it to scream. People were comparing it to yeah, like, it's crazy. I mean, it's not anywhere. It's, an, oh, it's aping scream. Surely yeah. like it's inspired by that for sure. Right. The movie that felt closest to to me though was um, "Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark," mm, which yeah. I really liked and thought I did thought it did a lot of what this was doing better. Uh, so that was like my point of reference and why I was a little disappointed by it. Uh, Jesse, what did you think? Um, Besides I'm... the needle drops that are <laughs> better I of can, a different era, I can put a, I can put aside my dislike of when movies specifically key into a specific year and then have the fun of choosing songs from that year or before perhaps ruined yeah. by repeatedly choosing songs that were several from several years later. It, I don't, if it's effective, I don't care. And I know you said besides, but this sort of like ties into like, why I, <laughs> no, go ahead. This movie. I just knew that was coming. <laughs> uh, because if it's effective, it's fine. And it's, it's fun. I mean, like I, there is some, is there something weird about associating even briefly the white town song, your woman from 1997 with 1994, which might as well be 20 years different as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes. That's weird. But if you score it really well and you have a really good moment scored to that scene, go nuts. Like, you know, uh, Cat people and, and glorious bastards. It's a great moment, um, but they this movie is less about to me the like way that they don't you know use period accurate nineteen ninety four songs. And actually, they like I would say like half the songs or more are actually very much nineteen ninety four. So like, fair play. But none of them score any scenes in any kind of interesting way. It's in this kind of idiotic iPod shuffle, fifteen seconds, uh, hit the clock and hit another song or fade it out that I just cannot fucking stand. And it's because the filmmaking this is so shoddy. Uh, 
not like in a, you know, necessarily in a camera placement way or an editing sort of way, but just kind of like the mounting of the production. It has, I, the reason I had, I struggled with disbelief that this could have been made before it was picked up by Netflix is that it has that kind of Netflix directionless bloat of like not having momentum, not having someone, whether it's a studio executive or someone, or, you know, someone who knows about no more about movies than studio executives coming in and saying, ah, this isn't working that well. Like you're losing your momentum constantly. This is, this is clashing tonally. This is not scary. This is not suspenseful. Like, and and not, not that studio executives are always right when they say this stuff, but this movie, God, I, and I had low expectations going. I thought it sounded fun, like a you know fun '90s like throwbacky thing. It's throwing back to something that doesn't really exist: the '90s slasher movie, notably consisting of like three movies before the '90s ended, uh, <laughs> and all of which happened after this movie is set. And I love I maybe I'm also biased because I love 1994 as a concept. It's like very to me. It's like the '90s uh, '90sist of of '90s years is 1994. Um, you know, Weezer Blue Album and all that. Like, I, but this movie i just was kind of puzzled by it like i didn't think i think i saw people referring to it as witty even like you know like oh well you know it's kind of witty like in a snarky kind of like surface level way name one funny fucking line from this movie there are no good lines in it this the snark is just kids yelling at each other being like well, that's a great idea yelling. yeah yeah it's just like so much really, they're just being hostile to each other constantly there's no sense of like fun to their interactions even the people who are supposed to be friends I think it seems to want a lot of credit for having a, a two girls be in the romance relationship and that's the romantic angle of the movie. And that's great if you have the characters have any chemistry or any sense of like flirtatiousness or like comedy of remarriage or, you know, or seriousness to it. Like something that's like genuinely sweet and tender, but I didn't find that at all. Like they seem really like ill-matched romantic partners um, I'm just, I don't think it's the actor's fault, but I didn't think any of them were very good. So um, you don't ship, um, <laughs> what was it, Sam? <laughs> Sam and whoever the lead's name was? Right, I do not ship them. Uh, it's And then it kind of takes a turn for the nasty in the last in last chunk of it, where I didn't feel like it, it was earned at all. Like, okay, now this is a gore fest where someone gets fed into a meat grinder. Like, okay. It was like, a, a bread cutter. Yeah, a break, right, right, right. Bread it's like slicer. A, it's a cool. It's a cool kill. If 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 this is a movie about cool kills, but was it like? It's just such a bizarre mishmash of like, you know. I think Lewis, your comparison of scary stories, which I didn't even like very much, is spot on. That movie is a lot better. Like even though I fell asleep during it and didn't care for it, like it was, <laughs> it was still like felt more like a real movie that was actually developed in some way. I just found this one like baffling and kind of irritating and i really did want to like it. i like you know i love period stuff they they, they like they they're like that even stuff that i am a sucker for like neon lighting want to reflect what 1994 mall culture it's all full of neon apparently like what the fuck are you guys talking about Wait, i it's really like, have to I, I have to bring up something with the needle drops though and the music choices yes. did either of you watch cruel summer I have no. not. Is that a TV thing? It's we, a TV thing. We notably don't watch TV. <laughs> okay. This, well, we'll laugh. I'm just kidding. Cool, <laughs> just cool kidding. Summer, cool yeah. Summer is um, an original uh, Mr. Teen mystery on Freeform that just aired its first season. Cruel Summer takes place simultaneously three different timelines. Love it. Uh, and it's, it's like a really clever conceit, and it's 93, 94, 95. 
and the period details are perfect and they only use songs from each year in the different Jesse's Jesse, eyes just lit up. And like <laughs> and, and it's honestly like the show kind of fell apart, but it's worth it because every episode has like one major 90s song that you love and then a cover of the same song in that episode uh-huh. and it's like it's very effective. Anyway, but I was thinking like Cruel Summer would never. Cruel Summer was so deliberate <laughs> in distinguishing between 93, 94, 95 in a way that like was so detailed and I was like what show cares this much about getting individual <laughs> years of the 90s right? Um, but it really did. So anyway, having just watched that, the anachronisms here bothered me more than they would have otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that sounds that sounds amazing. That sounds exactly up my alley. So I will check that out. So you should watch it. Okay. There's not only uh, this movie is very familiar, but there's one thing that's particularly familiar that I think it may be from Scream. Maybe Lewis can help me with this. Maybe you can, Jesse. There's that one sound cue that's repeated like a hundred times in this movie. That's like kind of like a sting, like almost what you'd use when like you're doing a jump scare, like right before, right after. It's like, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? I actually don't, but I like that you're trying to recreate it. I'm trying. I, I, all I needed to do was cue up the movie and play a sound, and instead I went. <laughs> Um, is it do you mean like a score or a sound effect it's a sound effect that you could confuse for the score and it happens so often and once i noticed it i couldn't stop noticing it i Um, I believe you that it's a scream thing i mean that's also that has the same what same composer so it's like yeah it's marco right beltrami yeah so like Um, obviously that's all very intentional i just think for me like it's not really a slasher and like, I mean, it, it obviously has elements of a slasher and like functions that way. But it, the reason I kept going back to scary stories is it has that whole, like here are a bunch of different kind of like uh slasher urban legend type killer. Like they're all yeah. coming together to kill you. Um, and that sort of that excess also reminded me of like American horror story and like a more modern like idea of like you you don't just have like one killer you have like every kind of killer imaginable descending mm-hmm. on these kids uh for me this movie delivers like everything you could possibly want from an r-rated adaptation of an rl stein book series but it's also like limited by that same constraint if that makes any sense it's like if i were 14 this would probably be like the coolest movie i've ever seen i would love it i would think it was so clever but as a 30-year-old, I realized, like, this is not a movie for me. Um, and the fact that it works at all for my demographic is a testament to, I think, uh, I think Jenny X did a pretty decent job of directing a not-so-interesting script. Uh, and I think it's, like, well-made and far better treatment than this type of material would usually get. Um, but at the same time, it's all pastiche and homage. Um so it, it's just hard to get too excited about it. Like, it's like, you know, if you're watching this as like a, a, a child's gateway into horror, like that's cool. And I appreciate that. Baby's first slasher. Yeah. Like baby's first slasher. I love, like I, I'm into that. Um, and I, I think it's cool that this filmmaker got a chance to make three of these. Uh, if they actually spent some money on them. Um, and I think I'm happy it exists in its current form and is a perfect fit, as we mentioned, on Netflix because it, there's no chance it would have been R-rated in theaters. But also, it just you're right. It's crazy to think that this was shot 
as a Fox movie and ended up on Netflix. But here's, I'm going to parse that a little more. I found the interview I was trying to find. So the film was originally set up at 20th Century Fox back in 2015 as part of uh, Chernin, their long-running pact with Chernin, uh, who did, you know, the new Planet of the Apes movies, Hidden Figures, The Greatest Showman, a bunch of other shit. Uh, Lee Janiak and her writing partner came on board in 2017 and ready to craft a trilogy of films for theatrical release in the summer of 2020. The idea was the, to, be, to release them a month apart. Disney's acquisition of Fox had yet to happen, but it was clearly in the offing. The merger hadn't happened yet, but there were kind of whispers in the ether about it. We knew it was going to happen, but it wasn't official. Moving forward to get the green light was a little challenging, too, because there was a lot of political moving around that was happening at the studio, and also just them, I think, not knowing what was exactly going to happen. The trilogy started shooting in Georgia in early March 2019, and on March 20th, the Disney deal officially closed. While we were shooting, that's when the merger became reality. Of course, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, Disney, great. What horror movies does Disney make? What does that mean? Then on top of that, I'm also thinking, we have this kind of very innovative new idea that we're doing here, which is movies that are going to be released in close proximity. And what does that mean for theaters? How do the traditional studios get their head around it? It was all kind of like, what's going to happen? And it wasn't that she was just in the process of making a trio of horror films. It was that she was making a trio of hard R horror films, complete with gore, sexual content, and plenty of swearing. I had one conversation while we were shooting where I was like, there's a lot of fucks in the scene, uh, she said with a laugh. Uh, she and her crew finished doing the films by the end of August 2019, with June 2020 release dates being originally eyed for the trilogy. The post-production process was kind of normal, she recalled, though merger talks still dominated and then the pandemic arrived. So shortly into 2020, the pandemic hit and everything was different then. We got reduced to a very small post-production crew. I think the conversations with Netflix had started earlier, but that's when it became immortalized and real. To be honest, Netflix was kind of pursuing this from before the green light. They just couldn't because of the way Churn Entertainment's deal worked with Fox. So while Disney had absorbed the films because of the merger, the pandemic forced the studio to pull them from the release calendar, but the churn Pact didn't survive. In April 2020, Churnin ended its deal with Disney and moved to Netflix. So in August 2020, Deadline reported that Netflix had officially picked up the trilogy and was already working on plans to market the entire series as a part of a special Summer of Fear package. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, it was a dream come true for me because I was like, okay, this is a new thing. Netflix is good at doing new things. They are not burdened by old structures and old ideas for what distribution must mean and what a movie means or what a TV show means. Their minds are just like, let's try this. Let's do it. I was super excited when that happened. Um, and she knows a thing or two about Netflix interest and ability in doing new things. She's married to Stranger Things co-creator Ross Duffer. I didn't think I knew that. Oh, I saw one of the Duffers was thanked. I guess it must have been him was thanked in the credits. And I was like, you mean for like providing several cast thing. members? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because the next one stars a girl who I think is in also in what third season of Change Things it looked like. The yeah. trailer for uh, the 71, 70s one. And you know, the, the thing is, I, I mostly hated this movie, but like I did I did pass the test I refer to often on this podcast where I started at 1030 at night and finished it without falling asleep. So like there, there is something, you know, that like that carried me through it. And I did. I thought the 78, 77 or 78, whatever it is, looks cool. So I hope the next one is more enjoyable and maybe it will build to something more to my liking. I, yeah. I mean, just to like echo or to add on to what you were saying earlier, Brett, like I do. I, I, I think that the fact that it is like this kind of 
you know, aimed at younger audiences in some ways, but has like sex and violence and and language. Like it's a hard, it's it's an R-rated horror movie. Like there is something kind of innovative about that, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. I, I if if they had just leaned into any of that more, like if they were free from restrictions, then yeah. why is it so tame until we suddenly get like a very gory kill late in the movie? Like why isn't there not yeah. more of that? Or if you want to do like a PG-13, I like a lot of PG-13 horror. Like it is what it is. You know, it's it's like you kind of work with those limitations. Like if you want to do that, do that. You know, I, I again, will keep defending scary stories, but like that was a movie for younger people. That was a PG-13 horror movie that like I thought was like smarter and scarier than this. And I just kept being like, I'm, I'm okay with like most of what's going on here. I just wish it were a little bit smarter and there were any scares at all. Like I wish there was like, a little yeah. more happening there. I agree with that. And the whole, like once you kind of put together what they're doing and like, you, you know, you're watching the first part of three, even though it doesn't really feel like it until the end. I feel like you really start to feel when they start being like, okay, information dump. <laughs> Here's a bunch of stuff that's uh, based that happened in the seventies or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it all, none of it's like super compelling. And to get to your point, Lewis, about is it a TV show? Is it a movie? This isn't going to help. <laughs> uh, the second and third Fear Street movies even open with the kind of recap sequences you'd expect to see from a TV show. Janiac, who cut these previously on sequences, sequences herself, loves the throwback feel of the information packed bits. She also loves the movie of the week schedule. I'm excited about the week apart because it still lets you have that event thing, but it's also not too much. I shouldn't even be saying this, but I hate waiting. I hate waiting. I want the instant gratification, too. I think this is a happy medium of a little bit of a wait, but not too much where you're like, "Ugh, I have to wait this long. I was so annoyed when I was waiting for Mayor of Easttown episodes. I was like, how do we have to wait every week to get there? No, you have to be a patron. That paid off. Yeah. 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 That show for so many weeks. Sorry, this is my separate issue with like episodes, like people being like, you should drop every TV show all at once. But Mayor of Easttown built up viewers by, you know, chatter on, on social media and by word of mouth over weeks. And it was exciting to watch it. So she's wrong about that. Um, I, 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 I also have to say like, um, I, I think one week apart from movies actually makes total sense. Like this works for whatever trilogy they're, they're trying to make, but like, it does add to the confusion of like, should this be taken as one giant movie or is it, you know, what, what's going on here? And I think like, it doesn't help that while the previously on thing is very much like a TV, we think of it as like a, a you know, episodic TV, uh, uh, thing. It also like was a thing in like slasher sequels of, of the eighties, to kind of recap the last movie and this, you know, or, or do the same scene over again at the start of the second. Yeah. So it's not, that is like a thing that happens in movies as well. Uh, less so now because like, I think people can rent and stream movies so they don't rent. God, how old am I? Uh, people, people can watch movies whenever they want. So they don't have to do that. But like slasher sequels used to do full on previously segments. So uh, it's TV and a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a bump. I, I'm just back to the gore thing. It's like the gore is gnarly on occasion. But really, just that one occasion, it's really satisfying. Like, oh, great. They actually did something in an R-rated horror movie that's worth being in an R-rated movie. Because before that moment, the bread slicer, it's basically just repeated stabbings, right? Which, like, they're gnarly, but it's just someone being stabbed and, like, way too much blood pouring out, which makes it, like, cheesy. I think Randall Colburn, friend of the show, said... 
that the gore is cheesy in a way that softens the impact, which is actually fitting considering the source material. And I think that's true. And he also called it a, a good sleepover movie for teens and not much else. And I'm, that's kind of where I'm at on it as well. Oh, I was thinking about how um, PG-13 horror can sometimes be great. And I had to look up to confirm that Happy Death Day is rated PG-13. Yes. Like, that was another movie where I was like, this is like, you know, you're leaning more into like, it's really smart, it's funny, it's not really scary, and that's fine. Like, it, you know, I think I have trouble when they try to do too much and don't really commit one, one way or the other, which I felt like this did. Um, but yeah, Sleepover Movie makes total sense. And like, frankly, I'm glad that younger people are enjoying it. Um, I'm a little baffled by the people around my age who love it as much, but like, <laughs> no, I, I mean, not, not that they like it. I do get that, but that it's like been so effusive, some of the praise. Um, and I think a lot of that is about having, you know, a queer relationship at the center, which I do, which I, I do appreciate and like thought was a little bit more successful than Jesse did, but like, it's not quite enough for me to be like, this movie is so important and like the dawn of a new era of slashers. Is Loki import is a queer thing? Did I did I see that Loki's bi? I don't watch Loki. Loki, Loki is uh, perhaps pansexual, bi. We don't know how Loki identifies. Loki has had relationships with with uh, people of all genders. Okay. I think also pansexual is uh, what they what they say people are in comic book movies uh, to avoid having. To, to basically about characters to present as straight, and then they're like they're pansexuals. So isn't that cool? Representation for everybody. They, they can edit things out for yeah. international yeah. races. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I I very much feel mixed about that. Where I'm like, it's such obvious bullshit because they're only doing it because it's like on streaming and not a major release, and like no one's gonna care about this. And Loki will literally never kiss a man in any <laughs> Marvel movie. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, it's it's fun and cute and like good for them. Like I, I, you know, I it's Marvel. Like my my bar for anything Disney is just like so low that I'm like, I I don't think it's like representation matters and like this is amazing. I think it's more just like that's kind of fun and like yeah. good for them for trying. Right yeah. on. Uh, with all that said, let's move on to the main event of Child's Play 1988. Formerly titled uh, Blood Buddy, and before that, formerly titled Batteries Not Included, be <laughs> before Mancini was told, hey, there's a Spielberg-produced thing that also has this name happening at the same time, so you may want to change that. Uh, that was happening in the script stage when he was told, hey, you may want to change it. Um, anyway, before we get into all the nasty details... Jesse, what is your relationship with this movie, Chucky, this franchise? Uh, when did you first see it? And how did, how, what did you think about it? Did your opinion change on rewatch? You know, Chucky, everything. Ch yeah, Chucky, no, Chucky and I. Um, we have such a relationship. I actually, we have such a fuzzy relationship. I can't tell you when I first saw Child's Play or if I had ever seen it all the way through um, with only breaks for occasional ads from Tubi, my preferred dirtbag streaming service because it left Amazon Prime. Um, I So this movie came out when I was too young to see it because I was eight when this movie came out. And I feel like I saw the you know, ads, not when I was even probably as an eight-year-old, but like I was aware of the series growing up as like this like, you know, fucked up horror stuff like because i was kind of a timid child and was not interested in things that were scarier violent until i was older and 
I caught up with it on cable at some point. I watched all three of them in parts and out of order, very much like flipping around type of stuff. The main thing I remembered watching it now straight through uh, was Chucky in the Fireplace, which I remember being in the last five minutes of the movie, which shows you how clear my recollection was. Um, but I did, in fact, I think the only one of these I've ever seen in a movie theater was Seed of Chucky in 2005. I think even Bride of Chucky I caught up with on the uh, on the home video. Me too. Um, Shout out to Gary, my dad, <laughs> who took me to Seed of Chucky uh, opening night. I think there was like wow. six other people there. Yeah. Oh, nice. He didn't um, care for it. <laughs> I'm really curious to revisit that one. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I haven't seen that since it came out, and I wonder how it plays now. Um, Very well. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I So I was always sort of, you know, I was not like a big fan of the series, but I sort of got into the fact that in four and five, they like finally seem to like go in a different direction from the f- first three, which maybe this is my fault for seeing them in such a jumbled, you know, cable TV sort of way. But I kind of thought of them as all being kind of the same deal you know, re- repeated it and remixed or whatever. Um, so watching the new chopped, watching the chopped and screwed. Yes. Chopped and screwed. Yes. The chef's special child's play. Um, watching it for the first time or again, whichever, <laughs> whichever that was today. Uh, Cause I just finished watching it like a couple hours ago. Um, I was struck. I mean, like I'll, I'll, I've said this before, I think on, on the new flash that like often when I revisit movies from the eighties and nineties, I'm struck by like how much more competent the hack work is than in similarly hacky movies. Now um, that's not to say like, Oh, movies were better then or anything like that. Just, just that I think certain types of genre fair, the directors seem like they're a little more practiced and they're not like, YouTubers being promoted or like, or music videos being guys being promoted too early or whatever. Um, they seem like they kind of know what they're doing behind the camera because I was, you know, impressed by some of the stylistic flourishes this time around. Uh, I mean, like I, I'm a base, I'm both like nerdy and basic enough simultaneously to be like, Ooh, a split diopter shot. This is fancy. Um, <laughs> and there was one. So I thought it was fancy. Um, to me, like watching it now, I was very much like, okay, this movie is, nice and concise and it's creepy to a point but i'm not sure it really nails it and maybe this this is maybe this is explained by some of the behind the scenes information we'll talk about but once chucky's actually walking and talking visibly on camera even though i'm not of the mind like oh you should never show that or whatever like i'm sure you're like yeah eventually gonna show the doll like doing the killer doll shit when that happens the movie does dip for me in terms of how creepy it is. Part of it is that Andy, the character who is like the main character of the movie, um, just leaves for most of the rest of it. And the movie becomes about a dumb cop and like a moderately resourceful single mother. And I think in some ways that stuff is like better handled by the remake, I have to say, which I, which I kind of enjoyed. Wow. Um, okay. But I, I do think it's an interesting movie and I, and I really enjoyed the first half of it. And the second half is fine too, but I, I was really struck by like, like, I just don't know if they really nailed how to make Chucky scary when he actually turns up, like when you actually see that he's talking and walking and stabbing and, and biting and stuff like, and then some of that's just, I don't mean to be like, Oh, it's, you know, these old special effects are no good. I just think like that's a challenge. Like he's a tiny doll that you could drop kick. So like you need to really chat me a challenge. Try. You could try. <laughs> I mean, you would, he would come back if you drop kick him certainly, sure. but like, I just, you know, I don't know if they really goose the suspense 
in the second half of this movie properly to make it like a really classic horror movie instead of just like, oh, this is a pretty fun B movie with like some nice flourishes and like it's you know, I enjoyed it. It's it's definitely it's definitely cool and, and fun. I just yeah, I, I it was both better and a little weaker than my memory of it. It was like the scary stuff was a little less scary, but the filmmaking was a little better than I remembered. <laughs> Right on. Uh, Lewis, I would love to hear your history with this movie. I know you've talked to the creators before and all that stuff, but where did it all begin for you? Um, I was very aware of uh, Child's Play as a kid, obviously, because it's like something that's really scary when you're, you know, a kid who grew up in the uh, in the 90s. Um, I think that I didn't, I remember I was at a friend's house and they put on child's play and I like panicked cause I thought it was gonna be so scary. It would ruin my life. And <laughs> their mom came in and was like, how dare you? Like it was a whole thing. Um, so I didn't watch them until years later. I think the first one I saw all the way through was bride of Chucky, which I really liked and, you know, then went back and watched all of them. And I think it was like the reason I, you know, I, I, as you said, I did um, a series of interviews with Don Mancini about the movies um, because they were making the straight to video ones that have come out. I don't, what do we call them now? Like video, what do, I don't, we don't say straight to video anymore. Do we? They, I get, I mean, DTV direct to video, I guess. So. I don't, I don't, v, I mean, direct straight to streaming and VOD. I'm really I feeling a thousand years old today. So I think that's <laughs> a problem. Um, but, you can uh, use the terms you know. We understand. Yeah, we, we'll get it. We get it. Contextually get it. Um, when I, when those were coming out, I was really I, I was in. I saw the first one and I was like, I want to do a whole series about uh, child's play. And I think part of it was realizing how queer the movies are. You know, Don Mancini is gay. He. I remember when I saw Bride of Chucky, like being surprised that there was a gay character in a horror movie, and obviously, like, you know, Seed of Chucky is super queer and. Uh, bizarre and lots of fun and less fun ways. I, I so I, it gave me this like new appreciation of it, and I went back and watched them. Um, having just rewatched Child's Play, I do I don't disagree that it's like not quite as strong as I remember it being. Uh, I think like you know, especially after talking to Don Mancini about it and hearing what his original vision for the movie was, uh, which was you know that that like. Chucky, we can talk about this more, I'm sure, that like Chucky was a manifestation of Andy's id and like it's all about like what consumerism does to children and like a much darker kind of version. Like that is, I think, more interesting than what ends up happening. Um, but I still like really enjoy the movie. I think Child's Play 2 is the best of the kind of original trilogy, which is probably not that uh, controversial given that 3 is the least favorite of everyone. Um, until seed i guess anyway getting ahead of myself but yeah i think that like uh some of it does seem a little silly i think that they do a good job of doing the jaws thing with chucky because you can't if you show him too early it would just not work at all yeah um i think he's kind of scary i think the facial stuff like his face moving i think is actually pretty effective yeah uh, they had three well, different doll heads with three different, like they had like a mean face Chucky, a regular Chucky, and another one. And like the use of like just like the puppetry, the fact that they had these multiple dolls with different faces, you you edit that together with your uh, little person Ed Gale running around. Uh, it, to me, I agree. It makes for a compelling. Oh, this doll movie is actually kind of creepy. Yeah, and I think like you know, I actually quite like again getting ahead of myself the child's play remake i think it's like a it's this really solid 
uh, movie. I think that the kind of CGI face Chucky is never going to be as scary to me as the, you know, practical effects Chucky. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I think it's creepy. It's not a very scary movie overall. And like, you know, one of the, yeah. first, the first kill is like someone getting hit with a hammer and then immediately falling out a window, which is like a little bit cartoony. Um, it's not, it's not a scary movie. It's not a very gory movie, but I understand why it was scary at the time. And I think like the character of Chucky is still pretty creepy, even as he's become, you know, more of a Freddy Krueger comedy type splasher <laughs> villain. Right. Um, let's go back to what you were talking about, the original script. So in Don's original script, as you mentioned, um, it was, it was way different. So basically one of the first things that was different is the doll was more based on like those, I don't know what you call them, but like the dolls that I think Don said that the ones that piss and shit (laughs) that you like have to like change their diapers and like take care of them and stuff like that. So Mancini said, this isn't a mental floss uh, oral history. If you played too rough with not the as doll, good as my oral history, though. not as good as Lewis's. Actually, oral actually to be fair, mine was very edited down, so I have more intel that I can share that was not in there. But go ahead. Yes, I was gonna say. I was gonna say the exact thing. Um, basically, if Mancini said, if you played too rough with the doll, his latex skin would break and he'd bleed. So you'd have to buy these special bandages. So basically this tied into his idea of consumerism and making fun of, you know, American culture and how it's just buy, buy, buy. This is a toy that's going to make you buy the toy. But not only that, you're going to buy the fucking first aid kit for it. But anyway, in the original script, the boy in a rite of brotherhood with the doll cuts his thumb and mixes his blood with the doll's blood. And that's the catalyst that brings the doll to life. And as Lewis mentioned, he starts acting out against the boy's enemies, which he might not even be able to express, like a babysitter who tells him to go to bed or a teacher who gives him a bad grade. Mancini also talks about he wrote a great scene where Chucky kills his dentist. Uh, <laughs> so, like, what do you think, Jesse? Like, do you prefer that as a jumping off point to the voodoo? Because Don Mancini, the writer, <laughs> hates the fam- voodoo. Hates the voodoo. Like, uh, maybe think- Lewis has some color on that, but you can speak. Uh, yeah, Jesse, first. go ahead. I... I do. I mean, I think as a parent, I certainly enjoy the idea of this, like being a little more of the kids id. I mean, I do. I did still react to, very strongly in a good way to the like absolute pathos of like a kid. Who, I'm just always react really, even before I was a parent, I always like reacted really strongly to like a child who wants something that's dumb, but like they don't know that it's. Of course, they don't. You know, a toy or something that like just means so much to them, even though. You know, in the scheme of things, it won't really matter. Yeah, and I just always find that so like heartrending. I don't know if whether it's a toy or something else, or like just when there's some kind of, you know, kind of like sad, cute little goal that they have that like that is hey, of man. course a really well edited jewelry commercial can make yeah. me cry. So <laughs> yeah, I understand. Oh yeah, yeah. So I I appreciate that. I think like they play that really well. Like I felt so I felt so deeply for little Andy in the beginning of this movie. The idea that he's like the acting out the frustrations that he would feel as a child, I do think is is terrific and I almost, you know, wish I could see that movie now. But I do think and I think by adding the voodoo, it's sort of complicate some another weird thing that I don't think I don't think was really in, intended probably by the by Mancini or, or even by probably the people who fucked with the script which is it's this weird to me I ended up reading as this weird movie about like 
uh, lower middle class people or middle class. I don't know. I guess they're supposed. Their apartment is relatively nice, but it's. I think they're supposed, they're to, supposed to be. They're definitely supposed to be quite poor. Yeah, yeah. She has to like save each month right. if she wants to get him like a nice birthday present. Um, so it's like they're lower middle class people who are like desperate to at least be above, you know, the like <laughs> the low class like uh, mix of serial killers, itinerants like uh, criminals and voodoo guys who are like sort of menacing them throughout the movie. And like the Chucky being in their lives sort of drags the kid into this. Like, you know, he's taking, he's like Chucky's having him take him to like these like shitty houses in Chicago and like this, this <laughs> the South side of Chicago. Yeah. Like yeah area. It's like, and it's, I don't think that's really part of the intended subtext of the movie, but it does kind of read that like, way. Cause the beginning of the movie, you are like, Oh yeah, they're really, they're really kind of scraping by. But then of course their apartment seems much nicer when you see like the hovels that, that Charles Lee Ray is, is uh, skulking around in and trying to get his revenge and stuff. And then they have like the voodoo guy with a, like a, you know, with a creepy apartment and the, and, and Charles Lee Ray's actual apartment you see is very creepy. And so it kind of all reads to me like, Oh, okay. This is like this weird anxiety about like, if you lose even your, at least your lower middle-class status, you could be like sucked into this underworld of like, that's, it's very bizarre melange. It's not like has no, has no reflection of an actual lower class life because it's like, again, a mixture of like serial killers and guys who know voodoo. Um, and like that, and the voodoo stuff I think adds a weird kind of slight racialized tinge to that again i don't think it's intentional by, by the filmmakers but it did go it did kind of take it in a direction for me where i was like okay this is this is a little bit like yeah it's less relatable than like oh this kid is not you know he's not having like the you know the most like pampered or you know uh like fancy birthday and just really really just wants this toy so badly and then it sort of takes into this other thing where like the toy is ill-gotten from the from the underclass and like i don't know it's just a bizarre uh a bizarre thing which i found interesting watching it but i i do think the like the idea of like a kid acting out his kind of kid impulses because they do have such strong impulses and like a less way of controlling it and like around six is around the age where you are you know really are starting to be more in control of you're expected to be more in control of your emotions and your actions uh maybe earlier than that but you know you're you know you're like first grade or so like that's really when kind of you're supposed to be a little more socialized so i love that idea and it does that kind of bums me out hearing that it had to well, be discarded i i do i i just wanted to say like about the what you're saying with the class anxiety I don't think that's an unintentional. I think that that's like, that's very much in there. A lot of that is in there intentionally. And like, to me, that's more of like his earlier idea of consumerism is evil. Maybe capitalism is evil. I don't know if he would go that far. Um, maybe he would in 2021, but like, it seems very intentional to me because like, it's very rare for a horror movie to show like, I mean, there's a lot of examples in different ways, but like this feels most like Candyman to me in terms of like yeah. dealing with, actual like seeing the project seeing like people who are very much struggling to get by and having that be part of the story i think Candyman doesn't like actually deals with race uh sometimes very sloppily but it's like obviously intentional i think here we have dr death who is like a little bit uh of an offensive caricature and also like who keeps the voodoo doll themselves lying around the house that's like a very <laughs> yeah like, mancini yeah. also takes huge issue with that like he hates the whole voodoo thing but specifically on one of the commentaries or features i watched he was like if you could 
have a doll that did that, why wouldn't he just be sitting at home making dolls of that and killing everyone that way? <laughs> right. I mean, that's there's a lot there's a lot wrong there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think like there is very much an intentional like class anxiety thing happening here. Um, but I think that kind of there's like, a couple movies like mashed together, and so like it's a little bit unclear. The, the perspective is not as strong as it would have been had this been all about how you know, capitalism uh, destroys us or, or consumerism destroys us. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to say about Andy uh, and what you were pointing out about his age, I think like making him as young as uh, they did is a very bold choice. Um, yeah. And it also really helps make Chucky seem scarier because I believe that doll could kill a kid. And I'm like For less sure. talking about fully grown adults. <laughs> yeah. Him and like him making um, this opening scene where he makes breakfast in bed for his mom and like is making a huge overpouring everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I found that so it's like a little bit exaggerated, but not really. Like if my five year old tried to make me breakfast in bed, it would come out like probably like that <laughs> on, a, on a good on a good day, um, and or she would just wake us up and ask us to basically help her do it for us. Um, and I just and found that you, so pay, you put newspaper over it like Sunny, <laughs> like uh, Adam Sandler and Big Daddy. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Um, and that combined with the way the very well absorbed like uh, good guy cartoon that you see that is like where this toy comes from is I was just I mean maybe that wasn't that hard to do in 1988 because a lot of those cartoons were still pretty fresh on the you know or on the air or just sort of starting to be on the wane I feel like those you know those things peaked in like 83 84 the kind of like transparently made to to sell a toy I mean like that's, that still happens now but really in the like early to mid 80s that was like a very prevalent form of, of uh, children's entertainment and it's so well observed both of the characterization of Andy and how sweet and also you know kind of messy that is and and also that the, there's this like yeah this very consumerist like idea looming over him that's like while he's making breakfast in bed for his mom on on his birthday which is so sweet he's also being inundated with this message of like buy this toy buy this toy and that's like that is something he really wants deeply even though he's obviously not like a, a selfish or spoiled kid so i did yeah i mean i think that the youth of the the age he he is in the movie is is really terrific and it does it's unexpectedly good like i i normally would pr bristle at a movie starring a six-year-old or starring a character who's six because they so often don't have a good sense of like what real ages are like or ages and stages or whatever, as they say on the parenting uh, websites. And this one really does a good job with like what a six year old is like. And, and it does make, I think Alyssa, you're absolutely right. It does make it scary because yeah, as much as I was joking about, you could drop Kate Chucky and he cannot, he will not be able to fight off a killer doll. Uh, another script. There was an, uh, another stage of the script where John Lafia jumped on and his device wasn't voodoo. It was more of a, like a Frankenstein type moment at the toy factory. So like prisoner Charles Lee Ray, or I, at that time, I don't even know if it was Charles Lee Ray, but a prisoner was being electrocuted on death row at the same time a doll at like the next door facility was being put <laughs> together and it would cross cut the execution with the doll being manufactured. This so does remind me of the Simpsons episode, the the, Hall, the Trials of Horror segment about the uh, like hell toupee, the one with the killer hairpiece that snakes. Ah, yes. And like that was an electric chair like execution gone wrong that like caused his hair to be possessed. So like the last sequence though of like the hair being shot like is very similar to Chucky being shot in this final sequence in Child's Play. So I I think that was an intentional homage. Uh, and there's an electric <laughs> in that, so I just you know wanted to make the connection. For sure. 
Uh, just more color on the Mancini background stuff. Because of my exposure to the world of advertising and marketing through my dad, I was very aware from an early age of the cynicism inherent in that world, particularly selling products to children. Madison Avenue refers to children as consumer trainees, <laughs> and I discovered that as a child. I thought I wanted to write a dark satire about how advertising affects children. Um, I also wanted to mention that that plot we're talking about with like, you know, him coming alive and killing uh, it, him being Andy's id. That is almost what the remake does. Yeah. Yeah. It is almost like it's basically taking inspiration from that and using the modern, I thought, really clever way of like having that doll. Like basically it's learning as it's growing, as it's like, you know, aging or whatever and like processing information. So like there's that scene in the remake where he's radicalized by watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, <laughs> which I think is great. So it's kind of like that, like uh, Chucky's learning how to be a killer from his surroundings. But they but he does act in that way as a protector of Andy. Yeah. So yeah, it's like almost that. Yeah. Um, the other original idea that I think we should mention is that like originally Chucky was going to just have the voice of the doll. And like the yes. idea that like, like it's, it's fascinating for a lot of reasons. One, I think like Brad Dourif has had a very long career, but like to me, this is his definitive role is like as the voice of Chucky. That's like probably what he's most famous for now. Um, but like that was almost not going to happen. He was going to, it was going to be, you know, whatever good guy doll voice. Um, which is kind of scary in a different way, but I think like probably the right choice to have it be Brad Dourif, like ultimately. Yes, I think Brad Dourif as Chucky is like the biggest coup possible. It's amazing for this franchise, and it's amazing that to this day, while this Chucky fran uh, Chucky TV show even is in the works at Sci Fi Network or whatever, that he's still on board. Um, and yeah. Lewis is right. They were once going to do the doll just talks like, you know how you'd pull a string and the doll would say like one thing like, hi, I'm Chucky. You want to play or whatever. So, yeah, he was going to speak entirely through that. And then there was another phase uh, where they I think they had scrapped that already. And then they said, why don't we have Jessica Walter do it? Because uh, the in the inspiration for that was uh, Mercedes McCambridge doing the voice in The Exorcist for uh, Regan. Uh, for Reagan. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they got Jessica Walter to do it. And apparently the the famous test screening of this movie, which was like a two hour long cut uh, that had so much stuff that ended up getting cut out. A lot of it to do with like Andy's dead dad and stuff, which helped helped explain why he was so lonely and why he was able to fall, you know, fall under Chucky's spell or whatever you want to say. But there was also elements in the old script that had or probably they even shot it, elements that, like, um, Chucky manipulated Andy via his dead dad, being like, oh, I'm a toy from your dead dad. And that's how, you know, he was able to get him to do stuff. So there was a lot of stuff that was cut out. But at that two-hour screening, that two-hour screening had the Jessica Walter voice on it. And everyone who's seen it, basically everyone in the production, they all say it was she was great. And it works, but it didn't work for the... They say that she that the humor didn't work. Which, knowing Jessica Walter now as, like, this iconic comic actress on Arrested Development and an Archer and everything else, it's crazy to think that, like, oh, she wasn't funny enough for you? Are you serious? 
but I, I'm assuming she went for something totally different. They yeah, I don't think she was scary. probably going for the comedy there. But I mean, like, I think the, the the idea to have the doll be a doll voice is like, you know, I think that what what's the biggest like killer doll movie before this would be not not movie, but um, the Talking Tina episode of the Twilight Zone is probably like, you know, the most formative yes. killer doll uh, story, and that was just a doll talking. Um, I think like. I don't know. I mean, what what uh, Don has said over the years, like, and and when we we're talking about the voodoo stuff and how much he hated that, is like the sort of idea of he he also hated the fact that there was this whole mythology where Chucky had to only get his body back through Andy because he was the first person he revealed himself to, and how that was sort of like a silly rule they made up ended up being very useful. And I think like having Chucky be this you know possessed by this killer however silly it may have been like ended up really helping uh the series continue so like if yes. you were some malevolent evil doll um it's a little harder to make that into like a friend i mean I, I, you can make it work but like there's a mythology here that kind of helps it uh truck along and i think it gets as the movies get a little bit sillier and, and wackier it, it works better than when it's yeah. like a more serious uh slasher i agree it does really pay off in the later later episode or later entries because when I kind of felt like it dropped off some of, it's not that I the dwarf is doing has a very distinctive voice that's it's interesting to me that he was in one flew over the cuckoo's nest with Danny DeVito and Jack Nicholson because that's what to me I mean I, I know this is kind of just Dorf's actual voice sort of but like he does sound to me like he's crossing those two voices he sounds like he's doing Nicholson and he sounds like he's doing Danny DeVito in 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 turns and I think what's kind I of never thought about that. That's actually really interesting. <laughs> yeah, a, do, it does sound like that. It's one cuckoo's nest in, in a whole cuckoo's nest in one in one doll. And when he turns in, you know, he finally speaks. I think that was also just like a moment that uh, I was really anticipating because, of course, I know the Chucky voice and like you know, gotten have a weird kind of affection for this like little bastard. And when he finally, and you're like, you're waiting for the, you know, he's, the mom is realizing like, yeah, this doll is actually alive. And so when she realizes the batteries have not been in it and she picks him up and like, you're just waiting for it. And it's a great moment of suspense. And when he finally speaks to me, it was like a real, like it should have been like a shrieking moment. And I'm sure maybe if you saw this with the audience in 1988, you would have gotten they, like, they a, kept a, talking about that moment and how um, audiences lost their shit. <laughs> I, think it's, I, I, I disagree. I think it's very effective. I don't think it's like scary, but I think it's a very effective moment. Uh, that I, to me, it, to me, it pays off because like you've been waiting so long for that damn doll to reveal himself to someone other than Andy. Yeah, I think like uh, from a you know from that point of view, it does. I think like the, what actually happened, like how the scene actually proceeds, is like I, I should have written it down what the line actually is, but he just like turns and is like. Blah, 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 bitch or like it's just like a, a lot of Chucky's oh, like what Chucky know. first says to her yeah yeah when he it? when I, he comes to life oh I, yes he just starts yelling at her hold on I'll find the clip you keep talking <laughs> and it's like I, it's just like a little of immediate deflating because I could see an audience like laughing at that and like and shrieking and surprise and delight uh, or anticipation and delight I should say but yeah just like in terms of like a chilling moment i'm not that i'm asking for it to be the scariest shit i've ever seen but just like oh okay so uh after all this build up he just like calls her a bitch and like tries to bite her or whatever. i don't know like and, and that happens repeatedly in the movie where instead of it kind of to me doesn't go to either the like 
funny, nasty, like wisecracking or the like genuine menace. It's just like he yells something stupid and like, and you know, like there, I don't know. I think the kind of mastery of the tone of Chucky, the malevolent killer doll who used to be a serial killer is def- definitely happens later in the series more so than in this one. I'm going to play this scene because I think I found it. Let me know if you can hear it though. Okay. I'll throw you in the fire. You stupid bitch, you filthy slut! Did you fuck with me? You filthy bitch, you fucking slut! Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's kind of funny, but I don't know. That that to me was a little bit of a deflating moment of like, oh, this is already into late period Freddy Krueger in terms of just like, oh, you're just going to say bitch a bunch. And like, I don't know, it was kind of like, okay, that could have been Maybe Lewis can speak on this, but I think Don Mancini's original pitch is kind of exactly what you're talking about, though. Like, he always envisioned it as a foul... He think he keeps saying, like, a foul-mouthed doll. Like, he loved yeah. the idea that the doll would be saying shit that is... Yeah, that it would be, like, a doll saying, like, these horrifying things. Yeah. Um, which would be fun in a different way. It's, you know, like... I don't know. I think, you know, we you can read Freud's uncanny essay if you want to learn more about the history of like talking dolls and it's a you know we have this like long cunning fascination with talking dolls as something uh uncanny and upsetting um but i think like you know there's something about have there's something about like the way that kind of like these dolls talk that is like creepy like unto itself which is obviously a more modern thing with talking dolls than uh fred was not writing about that but um, sorry to bring Freud into things, but um, it's okay. my point is that I think, I think like that original vision would also have worked in a different way and would have been like really unsettling uh, on its own. Whereas this is a, like a bit more surprising, but it's, it's not, you know, it, it's not maybe, uh, I wouldn't call it uncanny in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, That's fair. Should, yeah. I'm trying to think of where we should go from here. Do we talk about what this movie's about? I guess we just go through it and then I'll insert uh, some fun facts and Lewis can do the same as we go. Uh, it opens with the detective pursuing Charles Lee Ray. Uh, and Charles Lee Ray, uh, his name is a, uh, you know, a combination of some notorious names. It's basically a combination of Charles Manson, Lee Harvey Oswald, a.k.a. the man who assassinated John F. Kennedy, and James Earl Ray, the man who killed uh, MLK Jr. And it's like a, you know, a combination of those things. They all, they, I think it was Mancini or maybe the producer who said, you know, killers always have three names. So we had our killer have three names, but it's made up of three names of other killers. Um, so I love that detail. Uh, one of the things that I know was cut out of this opening sequence um, is that the cop was like originally uh, Chris Sarandon's character was dressed in women's clothing. And you can actually see that because he starts, he starts chasing him while wearing women's clothing, but he's dressed as a woman in order to catch Charles E. Ray. And um, it's like this whole laborious chase scene where Charles E. Ray pursues him as a woman. <laughs> uh, but then it's revealed he's a cop. Um so that scene was cut, but basically the movie opens with the uh, cop chasing a guy. The guy is takes cover inside a toy store. He's shot already and he's about to die. So naturally he uses a voodoo ritual. He performs a voodoo ritual and transfers his soul into one of the dolls. 
And then the store is struck by lightning and burns to the ground and everything explodes. And then the next morning, uh, we meet Andy in that scene we've talked about where he's pouring cereal for his mom and it's very cute. And uh, we find out Andy wants this good guy doll and we find out his mom can't really afford it. So she thankfully finds a homeless man, uh, a street peddler, who's selling the doll. But this doll happens to be the one, presumably this guy found it, like, you know, exploded <laughs> on, he, on the street. It was buried under rubble and somehow the box was intact. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So he, this he man, knows it's worth more in the box. It's worth more in the box. I like how I forget what the price is. What does he say? Like forty bucks, eighty bucks? He says her, he 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 says fifty because it's you know, the price tag. The 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 uh, you know standard retail price is a hundred. Yeah, and as her friend goes, no way, and I'm like, that's a good deal. It's half off. <laughs> I mean, a hundred dollars for a doll in 1980. Sorry, 88. Right? Like yeah. that's a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So she took the deal. She got the one in the alley. And that night, as Andy's playing with the doll, um, Karen's friend, and I believe they call her Andy's aunt, but it's just her friend, is babysitting Andy. And basically, this is when we get the first scene of a little killer doll killing a woman. Well, we she don't gets, leave. Well, actually, yeah, it's POV shots. How, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's, it's POV shots. I mean, I think that, like, part of that was intended to be, like, is Andy doing it? I think that, like... What's weird is that the movie kind of wants to hint at like maybe Andy's killing them and blaming it on the doll, but you never really believe that. And obviously we're coming at it from the perspective of knowing who and what Chucky is. But I think even for an audience, like there's way too much like other shit happening for you to believe that it's just this kid doing it. Like you, you pretty much know by this point, the doll is bad. So uh, yeah, I think that's, a Yeah it's a case of like wanting to have its cake and eat it too with the script or like kind of remnants of older versions of the script kind of seeping right. in there. But I think as I was saying, like, it is the jaws thing also of like the doll is silly. If you saw it, you know, if you saw it right away, uh, it would not, you know, not exactly what jaws is doing, but like delaying the, the reveal of Chucky uh, is, is helpful to the movie and sort of built suspense. The movie's not very suspense, suspenseful, but if it were suspenseful, uh, it would definitely build that uh with with the delayed reveal yeah i think it was tom holland the director who was really upset at the note to cut the doll like cut we don't need to see in the, that much of the doll he eventually i think walked off of this excuse me walked off of this movie and i think now because the movie was a hit and like spawned a franchise and i don't know when the about face happened where he started acting like he made you know he was proud of this movie right but there was a there was a point in time when tom holland was uh i think kicked off by the studio and they basically pared it down and i think the movie that we know is the version that the studio edited because like the reading i've done basically says they had this two-hour test Hold up. Did you guys hear that? Yes. yes. Okay. It sounded insane, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it sounds much better to me now than I even did before. Um, okay. I will try to figure out where I was, what I was talking about. Um, what was I talking about? The sound really threw me. Okay. Me too. Jesse, do you remember what I was saying? Uh, the shoot. Now I, yeah, that's, they, like, that threw me off too. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. I can't even scroll back and figure it out. Um, what if it scrambled? What if it scrambled all of our brains? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we're talking about oh Jaws and showing yes, the doll. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, Tom Holland, uh, the director. I'm pretty sure I've read that they had this two-hour test screening that included a lot of issues, like a lot of backstory about Andy's father, um, a lot of a lot more doll than we see, and it had this whole ending which I believe the, the original ending, uh, I guess we'll talk about it when we get there. But basically, Tom Holland uh, didn't take well to the note that the, the doll should be like the shark from Jaws. You should see it less. And it sounds like he may have left and the studio took over and made the version that we know now as this, you know, 90-whatever minute. It's like a short movie, right? It's like 88 it's, um, minutes. With, with, really? When the credits roll, it's like 82. It's like, yeah. it's well under. It seemed, it seemed long enough to me. <laughs> oh sure it's like yeah no it's it's not it's it despite it being 80 you know 87 or 88 minutes with credits uh it, it has time for like several false endings which are fun i won't give it but it does mean the movie feels like it's wrapping up at like the 72 minute mark yeah um so there was all this talk about how much doll to put in how much doll not to put in uh we were talking about the movie basically Chucky kills that woman. He hits her with a in the face with a maybe a toy hammer. I think he definitely a, draws blood. It's confusing though. I think it's a toy hammer, but like maybe he had a lot of. I'm never clear on how much like uh, how strong he is. Leverage. Yeah. He like he's a tiny little doll, but he can like do some real damage. Um, he's got a human heart though. <laughs> he does have a human heart, so maybe that explains it. I mean, he also spoiler alert is able to get another doll pregnant. So I don't know if the like, you know, physiology yeah. of Chucky is that consistent. Um, but yeah, he's able to kill a woman with a, a toy hammer. He kills a woman with a hammer and she falls through a window to her death. Uh, police search the apartment. And honestly, it's pretty clear. They think maybe the kid did it because there's little footprints on the table that who else could they belong to? But Andy says they're Chucky's footprints, obviously. And everyone's like, Oh, bro, brother, this kid's a, <laughs> This kid's got problems. <laughs> um, so the next morning, Chucky orders Andy to skip school and take the Chicago L train downtown. Love that. While Andy's distracted, Chucky sneaks into this man named Eddie's house and kills him by causing a gas explosion. But uh, this this is the time when he like voodoo's the guy, right? Or no, that's that's later. Later. Yeah, that's yeah, later. later. Uh, Andy is again considered a suspect and is admitted to a psychiatric hospital after naming Chucky as the culprit. Um, then we get that whole scene we mentioned where Karen is picking up the good guy's box and drops a battery pack, realizing that Chucky's been running without batteries. Uh, then we get the scene where she threatens to burn Chucky and he violently comes alive and calls her a bitch and, and attacks her before escaping. Karen chases after him, goes to police to explain what happened. But of course, the police don't believe her. Uh, Karen goes on her own fact finding mission and <laughs> finds the homeless man who sold her the thing and asks for more information about where he found the doll. And he tries to like sexually assault her. And the, the police guy shows up and um, they force the, the guy to admit he took the doll from the demolished toy store. Uh Karen again tries to convince the police guy that the doll's alive, but he won't believe it, insisting that he killed the guy named Charles Lee Ray. Basically, she figured it had she figured it out at this point that she like I think she figured out some something about the murder of the guy. 
uh, and he says, "No, this guy's dead. There's no way he's still around." I'm not. I'm. I'm confused. This. This synopsis is confusing me. Um, are you reading? Are you reading the Wikipedia synopsis? Yeah. Not the greatest synopsis. There not is, the there, greatest. Like, there. There. I believe. I don't know. Remember when she finds the batteries or the, the lack of batteries in Chucky, but that's like a tipping yeah. point for her. Um, I will say like she, she jumps on board pretty quickly to being like on Andy's side, which I appreciate. Yeah. 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 She definitely will. I mean, she, even when she's frustrated with him earlier in the movie, there's a sense that she really desperately wants to be able to believe him and does not ever really think that he could have done anything you know, untoward in terms of even if she obviously doesn't immediately believe him at the doll, she also doesn't believe that he that he did any of this, right. that he killed anybody. Right. He saw something traumatic and made up a story. Is like right, exactly. You know, most logical explanation. Yeah. Uh, but the cop quickly becomes a believer once Chucky ends up in his car, and we get this insane car chase scene with Chucky trying to kill a guy who's driving a car, and it's honestly <laughs> a really great sequence. Um, <laughs> And I really love it, and it's memorable. I think it's the I think that's the best and also most suspenseful part of the movie because I was saying it's not really suspenseful yeah. or scary. Um, I think that like that scene is very fun and like a little bit stressful. Um, it is, it is, and it shows, like, it shows like how a doll could conceivably get get like you know it. it maybe he, I don't know if he would be able to kind of like choke him the way that he does. Again, he's a doll. But like <laughs> you kind of buy it in that context, the way that the, the way that the scene like it, it works to kind of like show him as a real threat. I, I think it's funny how much this movie doesn't treat Chucky like a serial killer person. You know what I mean? Like he blows up a house. He <laughs> goes, gets into a car chase. There's like another explosion. I feel like at some point it's it like is- there's. Yeah, when he goes, when he's you lose that reminder, he t- does try to strangle the cop, and I believe in the in the beginning, don't they refer to him as like being a strangler, like by trade as a yeah, serial killer? He's, he's based off of like the Hillside Strangler or something. So like and, and his name is like the whatever Strangler. They they it's I both was like surprised that he wasn't trying. I mean, obviously he's a little doll, so it's going to be hard. Strangling is not going to be the easiest, but I was surprised that he didn't get to express any frustration about how difficult strangling his main thing is yeah, going to be in this, that's tiny, a great this tiny hands. <laughs> if, if, if only you could have gotten uh, one of the rewrites on this script. <laughs> it would just be him kvetching about him, about his tiny hands. Uh, but so I appreciate in that car scene, which is, which is pretty boss that he, he's like trying a bunch of different stuff. He's got the knife. He's like willing to try crashing the car. He's willing to try strangling. Like it's, he's, he's short, yeah, it's a nice little like I think- guide to how resourceful he is. <laughs> I think they spent like a week just filming that scene and well, all the exteriors are in Chicago and all basically all the interiors were in Culver city, LA and they built, not only did they build sets for this movie, they built two sets of each thing because they, they built one version that was 33% bigger because the little person they had playing the doll Chucky was 33% bigger than the doll. <laughs> so they basically built these big sets to do forced perspective. And once you know that and you rewatch the movie, you really get an, a new appreciation for like the details that they really cared about and how good it actually does look. And um, I just think that's worth noting. They also like, so not only did they have the 33% bigger set, which is hilarious. They also, the set was built like, I don't know, they said four or five feet off the ground. 
because they had to go under it with like a puppeteer and like the 11 people who operate Chucky. So just imagine while they're in the house, they're always elevated. It's just really interesting to think about. That's um, cool. Yeah, it is really cool, especially like, you know, now I think they talk about, I think Mancini talks about this or somebody does where, you know, when they make Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky, they're at, they're at the point with, with servos and, and robots where they can put dialogue, you know, have Brad Dorif say the dialogue and then like put that into a program and then the doll's mouth will move properly. They can do that now with computers. I can't wait until the future where they can just shrink Brad Dorif down <laughs> the doll costume. Uh, that's what we need to 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 wait for. <laughs> um, yeah, but I I didn't actually know that about the uh, the the weird sets, and now I want to rewatch it. But I don't actually want to rewatch it because rewatching it took away some of the joy I have in Child's Play, um, which I hope to reclaim soon with Child's Play too. Because I, in my memory, it's more fun than one. It is. I think and so too. I I'm hoping that is true. Uh, but yeah, I think like there's there's a lot of it's it's weird. The movie like some of it feels very. Like there was a lot of attention to detail and some of it feels very cobbled together. And that just comes from like whatever sort of studio intervention happened to kind of like put together these disparate ideas of like what the movie was supposed to be. It's also not only disparate ideas. It's also like the technological issues. Like we did Jaws on this podcast and Jaws famously, you know, has an iconic, incredible robot shark that is practical. But famously, it was also a nightmare to make with that shark right. it was constantly breaking and the same thing is true of chucky they would have to spend all day waiting for chucky to like do one their one chucky move that he had to do but like he wasn't doing it right so like it is impressive once you watch the behind the scenes stuff you really appreciate like the how far they went to make it work and i do think the movie really does work i gen i don't really have many complaints with this movie i think it's great um i do think the sequels are better and I think, but I think again, given the history of how many things it was supposed to be, and that there's a two-hour cut of this movie that is definitely way worse. Um, I think this movie's like, it's good. I'm surprised yeah. it's as good as it is, given the his its history. It's just yeah. like a crazy production in every way. I I think that's totally fair. I do like the movie a lot. I think like, you know, maybe it just lost something for me. I realize also this is the first time that I've seen child's play since watching the remake and like i god i hope don's not listening to this because like he would be very upset by this but i do think there are things the remake gets right uh yeah. i think overall well I, he's not gonna get mad because they basically stole his ideas he did but i right like there are things that like that Which right, i guess would make the him remake that and when, i mean he was salty about it and i think he had every right to be given the circumstances um you know given that this is a franchise that he built and that, it's still going. It's still going and that like literally no other slasher franchise had not been rebooted, had had every movie written by the same person. Like it's unheard of. There's just like that does not happen in in horror, yeah. or, you know, any any, you know, doesn't happen. Uh, so I understand why he's upset by it. But I think like watching this after the new child's play, like there were things I, I liked a lot about that movie um, that I felt like were lacking here. Um, and I think like a lot of that is just, you know, I think some of the, his original ideas, ideas were stronger. And at the same time, I recognize how what they ended up with was made more sense for a franchise. And so I'm grateful that they did do this, some of this bullshit stuff. Yeah. I'm basically where you are on that. Um, 
back to the plot synopsis. Chucky meets with John Bishop, his voodoo instructor, uh, and asks why his gunshot wound bled. Under torture via voodoo doll, John informs him that his body is solely conforming to that of a human's and that he will soon be trapped in the body if he doesn't transfer his soul into the body of the first person he revealed himself to, which is Andy. Um, offhandedly remarking that he's going to be get to be six years old again, Chucky finally stabs a voodoo doll in the chest and leaves John to die. Um, what did I want to say about that? Oh, the, the doll changing into a human thing. This is something that they consciously made an effort to do on the puppet in this movie that they completely dropped for the other ones. Uh, Mancini even makes a joke about it at some point. But this movie, uh, the, the conceit, that conceit we just described is what happens to Chucky. And you can see Chucky become more of a human than a doll by the end of it. You can notice his eyebrows become human eyebrows. And like his eyes, they actually like took inspiration from brad duroff's own eyes because they thought his eyes are really creepy so they like made his eyes instead of those stupid little whatever they look like when they're a doll they became way more human like and by brad, the end of the he was he was so attractive <laughs> in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and now he's just like only playing creepy people yeah uh, the long-haired like, guy in halloween too right or like grima worm tongue whatever like you get it he's yeah. a creepy looking guy uh but yeah his eyes are creepy so just just agreeing with that <laughs> yeah um super super creepy eyes uh i just i love that do you like that idea jesse and do you wish that the franchise kept up by the end of it chucky's this like malformed human that's like ba barely a doll <laughs> i mean that as you describe that i do think that sounds delightful i think it's one of those things that makes sense to jettison because what do you what do you really do with it then it's just a tiny person running around um and it's much easier for him to impregnate people, but then they didn't have that problem anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, they worked through that. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, I think it also makes sense. life found a way. Yeah, they worked yeah, through it yeah. by completely ignoring it. Yeah, <laughs> and like he, I, I don't remember exactly the specifics of how he comes back in in Child's Play two and three, but like they always destroy the bodies. So like, I well, guess you could. It's you know, funny they do, and like Mancini in one of the many things I listened to or read said that it was like a. It was on purpose how destroyed he is in this one. Uh -huh. They yeah. they definitively wanted him. It was kind of a middle finger to the idea of a sequel. They were uh -huh. like, we're going to make him so mangled and blown up and fucked up. He's going to be blown up. He's going to be shot. He's going to be blown <laughs> to bits and hacked away that there's no way he could possibly come back. And then two, I think, just does it in a fucking opening montage right, <laughs> of him getting put back together like they always do. Yeah, right. and I think once I think once you kind of you know I mean I guess again I forget the specifics but like once you're done with that first body I feel like you can you can say the rules no longer apply much like <laughs> much like they don't to uh, Lily Collins to, uh, Lily Collins uh, the hit film the rules don't apply exactly where I feel like he starts to he's tra I mean obviously there's still voodoo involved right I, if I remember correctly but I think he sort of has transcended that initial voodoo transfer and like it's it's playing by Chucky rules now. So the like, chanting is I, still happening though. The chanting is happening in all of the movies. Uh, <laughs> Give me the really power, cool. I beg of you! Yeah, it, <laughs> I think at this point, I think at this point, like Don Mancini enjoys it because it's like yeah. a little bit, it's camp now. It's just like, yeah. he's really kind of leaned in. Yeah, um, he, he seems like he's remarkably 
Um, as much as he like obviously has opinions about what works and doesn't work about these movies or, or and what movies and stuff that was made, the remake being made without his input or uh, or care, um, it seems like he's you know remarkably uh, reflective about like well okay this didn't I didn't I hated this at first but like what are you gonna I'm not gonna not do the sequel because of it or you know it seems like he just takes a lot of care with the yeah. character even though he, even though he doesn't agree with everything that has had to happen with him. Yeah, as Lewis said, like he he's vocal about what doesn't work, but he's also vocal that the voodoo thing has enabled the franchise to live. Like he yeah. knows yeah. that about it, and he and to his credit, it. like he's well, a lot of what doesn't work here is you know not was stuff that was not his idea that was like a, right. you know like he co-wrote this script. It's the only one that he co-wrote. Um, but he still acknowledges the mistakes that were made with three with seed of Chucky. So like, I do think like he's pretty good about acknowledging all of these things, even when they are his own fault and not just, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, good. I mean, cause otherwise you're the screenwriter being like, Oh, it would have been so much better if they just did exactly what I said. And I feel like he, he, he seems more, a little more, you know, realistic and sort of, uh, yeah. Fair minded about that stuff than a lot of screenwriters. <laughs> Fun fact. He wasn't, allowed on the set because of a writer's strike at the time he just like oh, he yeah. never went mm -hmm. to the set he w i think the strike was over by the time it was in post and he was involved then but he was not involved at all um and as i mentioned i think i think the other there's a lot of set problems i think it was mostly <laughs> holland um karen and detective norris following the leads of charles lee ray's case file find john as he lays dying and receive instructions on how to kill chucky although chucky's a doll his heart is almost fully human and vulnerable to fatal injury uh meanwhile andy escapes from a psychiatric unit where he is now because they think he's a killer and chucky brutally kills the head doctor in the process he gets killed in a funny way what happens to him doesn't he get uh shocked to death is it like electric yes. electric yes. shock yes that's his so, fault for having electric shock equipment there. Victim blaming. Therapy for people, but not how he was using it on children. I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, where was I? Chucky, uh, Mike and Karen rush back to the apartment, hoping that Andy is there because the authorities believe Andy killed the doctor while he is, was escaping. He's not there anymore. Chucky reaches the apartment where Andy is and knocks him unconscious with the baseball bat, which apparently was a contentious moment with the MPAA. It's so funny. I'm so glad they kept that in there. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> can we have a six-year-old hit on the base head with a baseball bat? And they're like, the answer is yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> after a prolonged struggle, Chucky pleads for Andy to spare him, saying, we're friends till the end. In which Andy does, oh no, not a not a great line reading, but from the talk on the commentary, apparently it was the best it was going to get. This wow, is that, the end, friend. Was, it's a, it's a terrible line reading, but I love that they admitted that. Oh yeah, they definitely. <laughs> I forget who I've watched so many. I watched it like four times with four different commentaries. God bless Shout Factory, but sometimes there can be such thing as too many special features. <laughs> well, like, was, yes, I think I, I think though like this kid like it's as good a performance that like you said as as they could get out of him and it's like mostly not that bad it's, it's not that bad and it's not he, distractingly bad he's just and tom holland did some like not quite friedkin level horrible director shit but multiple people in the oral history including ed gale i think was like i'm not gonna comment on ed tom holland as a director i will say he knew how to make that kid cry yeah. and like get oh. it out of him oh, man. uh yeah Poor it sounds Frank. like it sounds like they he was pretty mean about making the kid cry or like 
screaming in his face, whatever he had to do to get it done. But, but now the actor is making more child's play movies, so yes. obviously he was not too traumatized. I was gonna say Vincent Vincent's on all the Alex Vincent who played uh Andy is all is on the special features as well and you know takes no has he doesn't you know have any problem with what happened back then. Uh after Norris's partner arrives, the scattered doll part oh wait, I must have jumped ahead. <laughs> um this is the end friend. Thinking Chucky is dead, Andy and Karen go to help the injured Mike Norris. After Andy gets the first aid kit from under the sink, he discovers Chucky is gone. Very burnt but alive. Chucky chases after Andy and Karen. This is where I think Chucky looks the coolest when he's like burnt yeah. and walking around. Yeah. Uh, they barricade themselves in the bedroom. Karen shoots him several times, missing his heart, but scattering his head, an arm, and a leg in the hallway. Chucky starts stabbing the doors with a knife so that Karen will open it, very shining. Uh, after Norris's partner arrives, the scattered doll parts assemble or at- attempt to attack at the instructions of Chucky's screaming severed head. Karen, remembering John's last words, tells Mike to shoot Chucky in the heart. Norris does so, makes a direct hit, killing Chucky again, and it's hilariously bloody. <laughs> like he got, like a human got shot through the heart. Um, an ambulance arrives to take Mike to the hospital. Karen and Jack help Mike walk out the door, but Andy stays and looks over the remains of Chucky. Karen returns and leads Andy out of the room and turns off the lights. Andy turns to look at Chucky one last time before leaving. Chucky then says, "Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play?" as his last dying words. Um, and that's until next time, until next time. Uh, some things about the finale. Uh, I liked that the finale was supposed to be, I think this was something that this was something that worked with um, Don's original um, script better, but like the whole idea of the finale was to have like Andy use his toys to kill Chucky. Ooh. Like he was going to have a knife attached to the front of a, a remote controlled car and he was gonna do something with Drano. Um I'm trying to remember I'm trying to find that exact thing. I don't know if Lewis remembers. So Chucky was or uh Andy was gonna squirt him with Drano with a water gun and gets uh, this, uh, let's see, original ending. Chucky breaks into the apartment to perform the ritual. Andy sets up an RC car with a knife taped to it. Chucky enters the kitchen and gets stabbed in the leg by the car. Andy finds Chucky at Squirt's Drano in his face with a water gun. This causes a chemical reaction with the plastic, which gives Chucky immense pain. Part of his face melts away, and Andy squirts his leg. Chucky hides quickly and knocks Andy out by choking him with a slinky. Uh, Mike searches for Chucky and gets knocked out by him. Karen throws Chucky in the fireplace as several officers arrive, including Jack Santos. Jack grabs the baseball bat and knocks Chucky's head off. You can still see a baseball bat knock Chucky's head off, even though he gets his head shot off in this version. Oh, wow. You can still see the bat if you pay close enough attention from this scene where they're talking about uh, the police partner hitting him with a baseball bat and knocking Chucky's head off, which rolls and bites the officer in the leg. Uh, Karen then shoots Chucky's body in the heart as he says, I love you, Heidi ho The <laughs> officers collect the doll's remains as Jack tells them it was never alive and offers to buy them a drink. In the final film, the car can be seen on top of Andy's bed when Maggie tucks him in. Later on in the film, Andy can be seen grabbing the Arquisa car and the remote for it while hiding in his closet. Um, other deleted scenes, Chucky stalks Andy, uh, initially ra- ran Ray Longer at the clinic, there was an imposter Chucky 
Uh, Dr. Ardmore places a normal good guy doll in Andy's room at the psychiatric clinic, attempting to convince Chucky that it's actually Chucky and he's not alive. Andy is not convinced, however, and Dr. Ardmore admits the truth and does not believe Andy's claims that Chucky is coming to kill Andy and leaves, locking Andy up once again. That was cut for timing. There was a minor subplot cut in which Andy becomes friends with a young girl named Mona at the clinic. Mona meets Chucky later on, and uh, who tricks her into opening the door to Andy's room, which leads to the part of him searching the room that was left in the film. Mona can be seen in the final film telling Karen she talked to Chucky and he was looking for Andy when Mike, Jack, and Karen arrive. Uh, Karen and Mike visited the burnt-out toy store after she asked him about Charles E. Ray. They find a bunch of undamaged toys in the alley beside the store, explaining how the peddler found him. Uh, There was a scene that showed Dr. Death performing a voodoo healing with his mother, uh, on an ill infant while dressed in voodoo priest clothes. Sure, we needed more of that. <laughs> <laughs> John says a chant in Haitian Creole as he rubs an amulet on an infant. The infant is seemingly cured by the ritual, and John gives the amulet to its family to keep. The family then pays John and leaves shortly before Chucky arrives. It was cut for timing. I just want to say all these things were never on a DVD or anything. These were just like at a test screening once and never heard from again. Hey, there, uh, are, there were other things that, that did, I mean, the one about that you're talking about with the cutscene of the uh, multiple dolls at the institution or the yes. hospital does come into the, the most recent movie. Yes. And like, there were a lot of cut ideas that came back. Uh, you know, the, they didn't film it, but the whole, there's supposed to be a whole thing at the factory in the first movie that ends up yeah. being in this movie and it's great. Love um, that. That's my favorite thing in any of these it. movies, probably. But I, but I really appreciate the way that he like takes these good ideas and is like, I'm gonna just use that again later. Like, I'm glad that the last movie goes back to the hospital setting and like the are people crazy? Is Chucky real? Like that whole thing is played out again, uh, and it it's really effective. And so like, I don't know. These movies like have been around long enough to then pay homage to themselves and also to kind of like take up the ideas that weren't fully explored, uh, which is great. Yeah, I agree. And you can find the original 1987 script online if you're so inclined. I'll uh, just detail the couple of the other scenes here. There's only a couple more. Uh, there was an extended scene with Andy showing Chucky the various things in his room, including a toy train. Andy then comes across a picture of his deceased dad, which was actually a photo of director Tom Holland, which is still in the movie. Uh, Andy tells Chucky, this is my mom and my dad, Bob. He died in a car wreck, but mom and I loved him very much. It was cut for timing. The train can be seen in various shots of Andy's room in the final film. Um, it also expl- uh, in the, uh, it explains why Chucky told Andy he was an angel sent down from heaven by daddy, which I think is a line he says in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, an alternate version of the voodoo chant in the toy store. Charles stands up and holds a good guy doll in his left arm as Mike is shown hunting for him. Charles then lays back down beside the doll and continued his chant as in the final film. This is the only known deleted scene to actually surface. And there's that extended opening with the guy in drag that I already talked about. Charles tells Mike, okay, bitch, show me what you look like. And then Mike reveals himself and answers, what do you think? Am I pretty enough for you? And he kicks him in the groin. I'm glad <laughs> they cut all that shit. It sounded so really bad. silly. It sounds um, bad. It sounds bad. I don't know what else I need to say other than I wanted to detail what happened at MGM uh, that caused the sequel to not be at to be at universal instead of mgm and i found the la times article from 1989 that details it and then i also have color from now but basically uh the short version of it is an australian guy 
bought it. An Australian venture capitalist bought uh, MGM and just didn't want to make horror movies anymore. So like in a very amicable deal because it was an insane move that never happens in Hollywood where something makes money and the studio's like, we don't care that it's pop. Yeah, we don't care that it's pop. That it's popular. This isn't. This is beneath us. We we don't we don't want to make stuff like this. So they just gave the rights back to the producer, who then took it to you know everyone wanted it. But Steven Spielberg is the one who said, "Hey, please consider Universal," and that's where it's been ever since. Um, I guess that's the whole story. I could have read the whole thing. Well, <laughs> no, I, and I'm glad that it is because we got Chucky at Halloween Horror Nights, which is you know. A, a really important part of that annual tradition at Universal. Yeah, it's absolutely you know, true. I don't know you, have you been to Halloween Horror Nights? I haven't. I, I wish I, I. You know what? I might be uh, uh, in in the theme park vicinity uh, this October, taking my kid to Disney World. Uh, and I'm like, I was like, oh, can we somehow sneak out for a night and do that? Yeah, get, <laughs> it, get, it, get it, get a hotel babysitter. Listen, Halloween Horror <laughs> Nights is really fun. I don't, I, I, I've wanted to go again for years. Uh, but I think, you know, Don talked about how, uh, and we can get into this, I guess, at some other time, but uh, that like the Halloween Horror Nightsification of Chucky, because they turned him into kind of an insult comic, he like, he sits up in a, in like a window and he talks shit about people in the audience. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Um, they, they also have like little, like, like people dressed like Chucky running around, which is like less effective because they're human sized, uh, uh, not little people. Like, uh, I don't know. I want to say normal size. They, they're, they are people without, uh, I'm going to just stop talking, but the idea <laughs> is that they also have, um, like the actual doll sitting there and talking shit and like, it's funny and he's mean and like that changed sort of the perception of, of Chucky um, and made him more, you know, they, they, they really embrace the comedy side of the character is what I'm trying to say in this long winded way <laughs> that all helps like universal acquiring the property and like making him a part kind of a fun character like that uh, helped the trajectory of the, of the movies. hundred percent. I remember yeah. going to planet Hollywood. Uh, I think right about when bride of Chucky was coming out and the planet Hollywood, I think in New York or maybe it was in Florida, uh, had the Chucky doll, or you know, one of many Chucky dolls, and it was the cool- coolest thing I had ever seen. I'm sure it was the only real one. Yeah, the only real yeah. one. The Planet okay. Hollywood. Um, other fun facts that I want to share: uh, William Friedkin, Irvin Kershner, Robert Wise, Joseph Rubin, Howard Franklin, Rocky Morton, Annabelle Jenkel all turned down this movie before Tom Holland was hired on Steven Spielberg's recommendation. John Lithgow was considered to play Charlie's Ray before Brad Dorff was hired. Uh, we already talked about Jessica Walter. It was really cold when they shot it in Chicago. Uh, I think we can talk about... I basically detailed what happened and why it's at Universal, but I can read the whole oral history version of it next week when we talk about Child's Play 2. Uh, but yeah, MGM, MGM's sole Child's Play movie until... <laughs> They made another one in what was that 2018 now? 2019. 2019. Yeah. 2019. Um, so, yeah, that's the reason if you're wondering why was Child's Play able to be remade, it's because MGM had the first one and then they gave, they sold off the rights to all the sequels, but they retained the rights to the first film. So, like assholes, just because <laughs> they had the ability to do it, they decided we can make a Child's Play uh, movie. 
And now, presumably, if they wanted to make a sequel, they could do it and just it would have to be called something probably other than Child's Play 2. Or maybe they wouldn't even have to be that. Uh, I don't know if they would have to actually do that. But I don't think that movie made any money. So I don't think it's going to get a sequel. No, but, and it, it's a little bit of a shame because I wouldn't mind yeah. having like two very different series uh, happening at the same time. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I definitely enjoyed this remake in theaters more than I did rewatching it at home when I bought it on Blu-ray excitedly. Um, but I still think it's better than average remake. I didn't think it needed to exist before I saw it, and as it, after I watched it, I, I, I completely agree that like it can coexist. It's doing a totally different thing than what this franchise is doing. And if they released, you know, if they started announcing Child's Play two in terms of the Lars Klevberg movies, I would be excited for that too. But as of now, I'm stoked for the, I think it's on sci-fi. It's actually on sci-fi and USA, I believe, uh, of uh, TV We're show. We're all the same now. There's like, yeah. you know. TV doesn't exist. It's just yeah, like no, it's a, all, it's a, all... a channel on your. Uh, it's on your, streaming somewhere. Your TV stick. Um, but yeah, Chucky comes to TV soon, but we'll be back uh, before then with Child's Play 2. Three, Bride of Chucky, Seed of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, and then Cult of, Cult, Chucky. Of, Cult of Chucky. And I guess we'll do the Child's Play remake for good measure, even though we already covered it. Um, Je- uh, Lewis mentioned that uh, the Living Doll episode, I believe, of Twilight Zone, the Talkie yeah. Tina, as an inspiration. Another inspiration, a movie that it's in my Netflix DVD queue, and it's arriving this week. A film directed by Richard, Richard Attenborough, starring... Anthony Hopkins called Magic Ooh. from 1978. It's a, a, you know, a movie about a guy with a ventriloquist dummy that's presumably evil. That was another one of Mancini's like inspirations that, uh, you know, there's a bunch of movies that have doll killers, but none of them focus on the doll right. as its own character. And Don Mancini thought with basically, I think he saw Gremlins and said, you know, with this technology now, animatronic tech could do something cool with the killer doll let's try it and the other thing that inspired it trilogy of terror 1975 made for tv movie starring karen black one of the segments involved the killer doll they used a pov famously uh to do the dolls pov i think they did like a camera on a skateboard for that it was really great Anyway, that's all my random notes about child's play i do think you should read the s if you have you read freud's essay about the uncanny uh yeah several several years ago you should, you should revisit the part about dolls because it's actually really interesting about why talking dolls have scared us for so long um i remember the, the slappy isn't that his name the goosebumps the guy night, the living dummy Correct. yeah i remember that as a kid was really really fucked me up it's scary <laughs> i do think i i put ventriloquist dummies in a separate category because they're like scary in a different way to me but it's all sort of the same and then Jeff Dunham's scary to me in a different way, too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, are a nightmare. All right. Well, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, Lewis is returning next week for Child's Play 2 and uh, the rest of them, honestly. Um, we might... I don't think we'll take a break in, in recording, but there might be a break in releasing because there's a couple major release horror movies coming out, including Escape Room 2, yeah. of the Champions, Oh, uh, and I meant to ask, uh, Lewis, there's a, I'll cut this part out. There's hilariously, there's an AMC investors screening of Escape Room 2 tomorrow, of which I am one. And if you wanted to go, I, I'm, I'm allowed to buy an extra ticket. 
Uh, it's a 10-day early screening, if you when have any interest. Let me know. Tomorrow at 7 at Kipps Bay. Oh, I can't do that. But I'm curious to hear how it is. For sure. I will report back. And uh, Jesse and I will do an episode on Escape Room 2. Presumably, we'll do a bonus episode on Escape Room 1 on the Patreon before then. We have another Patreon episode to do before even that one. I think we're going to do it on the original Purge. That'll be out this week. The Patreon's going great. New Patreon perk. If you're on there, you will get the episode early. The main feed episodes. I will be putting the main feed episodes on the Patreon as soon as they're done being edited. So honestly, uh, this Child's Play one, you could listen to it nearly a whole week early if you have a Patreon. So keep that in mind if for some reason you're in a time crunch to watch all these movies. <laughs> Actually, I think they're... Maybe I missed it. Maybe they left Netflix on June 20 or June 30th. No, no, they're still there. They're, I believe uh, the okay. two, three, four, five are still there. Nice. So these movies are still on streaming until I think the end of July. So uh, keep that in mind. I hope you enjoy watching Child's Play. It's streaming. The original Child's Play, I want to say, is on Prime Video still. And the it's other not, ones are uh, on Netflix. It, it was taken off Prime. Oh, but, it's, but it's on Tubi, it. motherfuckers. So it you must have been on it. Prime. Vi- I watched it on Prime quite recently. So it, yeah, so it, it went off, I think, at the, just the very like the like, 31st, few days ago. Or um, but, cool. t- but Tubi has both Child's Play from 88 and also Magic, the Anthony Hopkins dummy movie, which maybe I'll check out if I have Oh, damn it. I'm taking so, that off my DVD Netflix. It's also a William Goldman movie. So... Wow. William, William Goldman wrote the screenplay, so I feel, and and I believe the novel it's based on. So, um, yeah, sounds Goldman like an interesting movie. I can't believe I've yeah. never seen it. Yes. So I'll probably report back on Magic next week as well. But uh, Child's Play two next week. Anything to plug, Lewis? No, you can follow me on Twitter at Lewis Peitzman. It's about it. Amazing, Jesse. SportsAlcohol.com is going to have two podcasts up in the next week or so. One is a very niche object about the movie Streets of Fire and the movie God Help the Girl. And the other is a very broad uh, cultural object about the the top grossing movies of the summer 2001. Those will both be out very shortly, hopefully by the time this is posted to the main feed. I love that self-imposed deadline there. (laughs) Uh, And you can follow me on Twitter, at Brett Redacted. Tell me to log off. I shouldn't be there. I should be being, being <laughs> you more productive. Log, you log off, yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks. All right, that's it. Bye. Bye. Cool. That's That was really fun. Thanks, when did Sorry. you, yeah. you want to record the next one? Um, If this cadence works for you, we can keep it uh, every Tuesday-ish. I can't, I can't do daytime usually. This was the okay. I happen to have work um, on. So I can usually do... Uh, I forget. Are Sundays bad for you? Um, this Sunday is tricky only because my parents are here, but I could make it work depending on when. So, like, okay, evening I could make work, or like late. I'll probably see them during the day. So, like, late afternoon, evening, whenever I could do next Sunday. Okay, if that works for Jesse, let's try for that. Yeah, that should work. Okay, uh, I'll connect with you on that to make sure. Cool. Put that down. All right. Thanks, everybody. Sorry I took two hours of your time. No worries. No problem. <laughs> All right. Thanks, All right. Guys. Bye, guys. I learned death is not the end of the new flesh. Mom, the new flesh. I was hoping you'd be back.